Welcome to Unsuitable Advice Podcast. I'm your host, Gail Suter, the CEO of unsuitableadvice.com. We are here to change the way the world thinks about neurodiverse students. Hi, everyone out there. Welcome to Unsuitable Advice's podcast on changing the way we perceive neurodiversity. Today's guest is Susan Lucy. Hi, Sue. I am going to let you introduce yourself today because there are so many excellent qualifications that I could never list them all off the top of my head. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much, Gail. I'm really happy to be with you uh, and to talk about this important topic. I've been in education for over 35 years now, much as I hate to admit that. Right now, I have the privilege of leading a nonprofit called Mass Insight Education and Research. Previously, I've been a superintendent of schools for about a decade, um, most recently in Providence, Rhode Island, a mid-sized urban system, also in Portsmouth, Rhode Island, a, um, a smaller suburban system. I've also served as chief of staff in the Providence Schools as assistant commissioner uh, for the Rhode Island Department of Education, and I worked years ago for the Coalition of Essential Schools. I have uh, a master's in teaching and a master's and a PhD in public policy, and I wrote a book many years ago on the role of state departments of education in school reform. The reason for having Sue on today is to talk about the challenges that school districts face when meeting the needs of different neurodiverse students. And that, for me, neurodiversity includes not just different ways of learning with learning disabilities, but also kids that are struggling with sensory disorders or social social needs or even um, mental health needs, because I really do feel like different brains are wired differently and they Mm -hmm. cause different challenges throughout the educational career. So Uh in your experience, what is the process of trying to be able to serve kids who are outside of the box? What are the steps that you look at when you're a superintendent or how do you approach that service? I'm going to start really broad and try and narrow down and you can just redirect me as needed. I think school systems in general are set up to play to the average and there is way too little flexibility in how we tend to kind of orchestrate time, money, people, and programs on behalf of kids. So for example, and bear in mind, my experience has all been in the Northeast. So some of what I say may be a little different in other parts of the country. But in the Northeast, for example, it tends to be the case that pretty much every class is one teacher, 25 kids, give or take. And that changes for kids who are deemed, quote unquote, higher needs, special needs kids. But there are lots of kids who would benefit from smaller groupings for different types of instruction, whether or not they are actually, you know, somehow deemed to be high need special ed. So I think ideally, we would have a lot more flexibility in schools because there's some modes of teaching, right? Where if you have 40 or 45 kids, it really doesn't matter. If it's 
more kind of delivery of information. There's a segment of work that's largely computer-based and you don't need that smaller attention. And we, we are trying to work at Mass Insight to start trying to create more of those flexibilities. In the traditional system, though, it's really, a, they talk about multi-tiered systems of support. So you're trying to figure out how you can really serve that pyramid. The base of services for all kids and the needs increase fewer and fewer kids reach it. it. It can feel like, I think, both for teachers and families, like going through a lot of hoops to get the needs of their kids met. But the flip side is there's a lot of pressure from state and sometimes federal levels around not over-identifying kids for special education. So there's this mental model that to get more than that foundational (laughs) service, you somehow have to go through multiple steps to demonstrate that need. Can I ask you a question about that? So what is the reasoning behind the pressure to not over-identify? I think part of it's cost. Mm -hmm. I think historically anyway, and sometimes present day, when kids are identified as quote unquote special needs, there are some educators who think, well, that means they're not going to learn to the same level. There's a fear that it would change the expectations for results. Exactly. And then there's a piece that I think is right. If there was more flexibility, we should be able to meet many more needs within a traditional educational setting. But I think where that breaks down is we don't always have the flexibility to group and regroup kids, maybe some with more adult educator support, et cetera. Thinking about this podcast, I went back and looked at 1970s public law 94-142, which was kind of the IDEA law. And that law, public 94-142, talks about paying 40% of the cost for special needs kids. And I found an article from Ed Week in 2020. So it's a couple years old, but they've never really gotten above 15%. So there was this promise in this federal legislation or this, this benchmark that's never been achieved. So it does feel like when you sit in the seat of a superintendent that you're getting squeezed because you want to meet the needs of these kids who have been identified, they have legitimate needs for additional support. And there are often lots of other kids that have very legitimate needs for additional support, especially in a place like Providence. But in any system, there are a lot of kids who are below grade level in reading or math for a whole host of reasons. Sometimes they've had interrupted education. Sometimes there's severe poverty. And that has limited their opportunities in a whole host of ways, not only in education. Sometimes they are non-native English speakers, and that interrupted or slowed their education in the U.S. system. And so those kids have additional learning needs. So it feels like you're getting squeezed financially. We, We would like to think it's not just, you, you know, that you can enlarge the pie, Yeah. (laughs) But when you have a certain amount of funding for a given year, the more that goes to special ed, the less that's going to general ed. 
And I really think that goes to one of the major themes that we've been discovering on this podcast to achieve or to get a label, to get through that gauntlet or hoop jumping to be identified. It's privileged access because it takes an advocate. It takes a parental advocate combined with a teacher advocate to be able to follow through on all of those steps. If your parents are working parents, they don't have the time to make sure you can get to different appointments or call to follow up you can fall through the cracks. And it's really interesting too, to hear about all of the different needs of different types of learners that would benefit from the same techniques that the identified kids need, but the system isn't set up for that. So it's so great that Mass Insight is trying to push some innovation in education. I definitely do not think that parents of neurodiverse students are interested in only trying to get their one child educated in the way they need, because it has been proven that the techniques benefit all the children. That's right. And everywhere. And and similarly, you know, people say the same thing about meeting the needs of English language learners, for example, when there are techniques used that help with understanding language, it also can benefit the comprehension of many other kids in the class. And the grammar and seeing all of how that structure language happens is beneficial for every person trying to use the English language, which is probably one of the most technical languages in the world as far as spelling. Um, Just to make life challenging. Yeah, because we've really (laughs) mashed together several different languages, so spelling is quite random. At least that's the way it feels Um, in neurodiverse. I just want to do a tiny sidebar, if I might, on on Mass Insight. So so we, just to be clear for your audience, What we're working on as part of our work, which it's a relatively new part of our work, but is thinking about how do we help systems over time kind of reinvent? Mm -hmm. So so we have- Evolve, right? Yes, evolve. Yes, I like that word. We have for a very long time supported systems that have been designated as low performing through the federal and state identification systems. And we fervently believe that there's just so much evidence that the traditional system is not set up to do what really needs to be done to serve all kids well. And we particularly focus on kids that have been systemically marginalized. While we tend to focus in our language around Black, Brown, and low-income kids, I think it's also unquestionably the case that neurodiverse kids have also been part of of a population that's been systemically marginalized. I agree. And it's really interesting when you were talking about feeling squeezed because that federal law made it against the law to not meet the needs Mm -hmm. of the children who have been identified with they use the word disabilities and the expectation and the law enforcement is there for the law, but then the funding's not there. So it's not even just being squeezed. It's literally tying your hands to meet 
the needs. Yeah, it definitely, I I think two things are true. I think, you know, some systems do it better than others, even within those funding constraints. So I never want to say we can't do better by kids in this system, but it also is the case that there are some real barriers and some of them really, many of them boil down at the end of the day to to resources. Exactly. School systems themselves all across the country are so diverse in who they serve, how they serve, what tax dollars they get. Yes. Like everything. I 100% want to make that clear to our listeners. That is not all the same across the country either. Every system has a different way of dealing with it. And there's a lot of difference from state to state. Yeah. And even county to county within the state. You That's know. right. Well, that is an interesting piece of the pie. As you think about the system and what you've seen, I feel like you've had a really great view of it from a lot of different perspectives. What do you think could be the low-hanging fruit for evolving the system in a way that that wouldn't require a major restructuring? So I think I'd start in two ways, and it and it does depend a lot on the local context how challenging this would be. But I think one piece, as we think about evolving school systems at Mass Insight, it's often the case that schools have not traditionally listened terribly well to families and community members. And some of them are, depending on the demographics, Some members of the community may have been cut out more than others. So we do think you have to start by really listening and, for lack of a better term, understanding the user experience. So what's, from the perspective of the family and the students, what's working well and what's not? My hunch is that would show you some low-hanging fruit, too. But it also would show you the right low-hanging fruit from the perspective of the people you're trying to support. So I would start with listening. When I was in Providence, now this was years ago, I left in the end of June of 2015. We had been trying to create greater school-based autonomy to create those flexibilities. The teachers serving the kids most directly and that kind of the leadership team within that school They know best what needs to be done, assuming they have access to good curriculum, they know good teaching practice, et cetera. The more I think we can authorize people to orchestrate themselves around meeting the needs of kids, I think the better off we would be. And that could lead to things like, I'm going to take 35 kids for this period because we're doing this, and you're going to take... 15 and do that. And so there could be, I think, much more flexibility given the group of kids in front of us, given the resources we have here, how can we best meet those needs? And it's pretty clear to me it's not going to be, oh, I know we're going to keep everybody in groups of 25. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that you say that the first step is listening because even at unsuitable advice, when I'm doing uh school audit, the first thing I do is interview all the players, right? So I go in and I'll interview the teachers, the administrators, the board, the students, 
who are neurodiverse yeah. and how they're feeling and the parents, how do they feel? Right. The alumni, who did they serve well? Who felt yeah. like, oh, that school was a good school for me and here's why. Because I think that gives you the whole picture of all of the players and their needs. And also along with the resources available, coming together as maybe a school district and saying, hey, our school has a great reputation for serving kids with these types of needs or these types of interests. So sort of playing along with those magnet schools or the charter Mm -hmm. schools, districts are all different. Some districts, it would require busing for hours and that may not work. If you're in more of a condensed urban district, you might even be able to like pull together that service. That's right. In a different way. And if you think about now, all we've learned about using technology. I I do not want to see kids on screens hours on end, but I do think there are ways to draw from a great class being taught at a neighboring school. The busing could be a problem, Mm -hmm. or maybe they only want to go to that school for a period or two. You can develop good hybrid or technology-based models that also extends that. And just going back to the listening for a minute. So we at Mass Insight, we do much the same process you described at Unsuitable Advice. When we do an equity audit for a school system, we're not able to listen. You know, we're not able to interview everybody, but we do focus groups. Explain what an equity audit looks like. Maybe start with what equity looks like versus equal. I forget who said this originally, but Equal is everybody has a pair of shoes. Equity is everybody has a pair of shoes that fit. So equity is is about meeting the needs of the individual, not just everybody, which means everybody is not going to get the same thing because not everybody needs the same thing. But equal would be you get the same thing, whether... (laughs) You need it or not, whether, you need or it, or whether not. it helps. Yeah. Or not. And the equity audit, it really looks at everything from school district policy, how they handle data, how they assign teachers, how they assign kids, discipline policy, curriculum, who feels listened to, what do family members say. What does the data tell us about which kids are doing well, which kids are not? And it's really trying to find both strengths that the system has to build on, because we do believe every system has strengths and every community has strengths and barriers to opportunity for certain groups of kids in a system. And as you go into those lower performing schools, what would you say if you can, and maybe it's not even possible to generalize themes that you see as challenges in most of your schools or what's sort of a reoccurring pattern for schools that are struggling to meet the needs of their community? So one clear pattern is they tend to serve a population of kids that bring a multitude of needs. So kids who really need many more opportunities and supports than they have had. I mean, when you look at just our society, kids of color tend to also, you know, people of color tend to have lower incomes. They tend to be not always, you cannot generalize because, you know, there's also very low income white 
white people too, but the way our zoning has worked, you talk about things like redlining. We have had multiple systemic factors that have led to a density of people with high needs in certain areas. And the schools tend to reflect that. Often there are not enough resources. Then too, sometimes resources aren't used to their best advantage. So we talk a lot about coherence. What do you mean by that? Kind of not getting mixed messages. So sometimes if you're in a low performing school, like you're asked to do a school improvement plan for the district, you might be asked to do another one for the state. The state might ask for a few. They might ask for one for your ELL kids, one for your special needs kids. So we're working on like, there's one plan, like figure out where you are, Mm -hmm. figure out what the most high leverage things you could do to improve are and work on executing on that plan as opposed to we've got a bazillion goals and plans. Is that possible to have coherence if it's all these different players? We're aiming for one plan. There's also sometimes real issues with talent. So that might manifest as there are a lot of uncertified teachers in the building because they haven't been able to find certified staff and or there's insufficient professional development for teachers and or there are really poor human resource systems and practices at the district level. So they're not hiring soon enough. So there's a lot of challenges. Yes, exactly. (laughs) With these folks. What have you found in your experience at Mass Insight in supporting schools that are low performing or trying to figure out a better way? What are some things that have gone right and affected change within a system? So there's a district um, we've worked with for a period of time. They started, for example, some years ago with a zone of low performing schools. And they really, they created conditions. So they created flexibility for those schools. They created a unified direction. They set up a zone office with our support to support those schools. And it really was creating that coherence. They then learned from what was happening in those schools. And over time, they developed a new vision of high quality teaching for their district. Then they started orchestrating around that vision. So that was everything from, and again, this is over time, they couldn't do it all at once, but are your central office folks who are supporting principals, are they the right people and do they have the right expertise and do they have a small enough number of schools to work with so they can really support that principal in supporting high quality instruction. And then later working with leadership teams include, when I say a leadership team, teacher leaders and administrators in each school. So we have this vision of high quality teaching. How do you know it when you see it? And how do you coach people to the extent you're not seeing it yet? How do you coach people to do that? So that was really ongoing work to help people learn how to coach And then surveying teachers, like how often are you seeing your person? Mm -hmm. Are they, do you find him or her credible? 
Are you getting actionable advice? It's really intentional work over a sustained period of time. Which can be hard when school systems change. Superintendent leaves or if the principal leaves or the next person comes in with a new vision. But it was interesting that they started with a zone of schools that allowed for collaboration to share what was working and what wasn't working and then was able to pull together Mm -hmm. a priority that seemed to pay off because it allowed those underperforming schools to collaborate on problem solving together in a, within a smaller system. And then it sort of from grassroots took off for the whole system. And, And one thing just to build on the collaboration point, we have some people working on a paper right now, learning from some of our zone work. And in this system, they did have a history of collaboration And that really seems to have supported the work. So there was a history of culture. Yes, of labor management collaboration. Because I think if there's not trust. It's not just trust too. It's trust and value in other people's expertise. Yes. So it's like the sharing of gifts, right? So one teacher might really be gifted at this, but be challenged by that. Another teacher might have a tool. It's more about, which I always say in my company too, is it's not about independence. It's about interdependence where everybody is able to offer their gifts and benefit each other in a way that allows for a better whole than trying to make one person whole, Yeah. right? So even for neurodiverse learners, It's not about making them the best writers or loving reading. It's about developing their gifts and knowing where they need to bring in other people's gifts, whether it's Mm -hmm. editing or Mm -hmm. whatever. We talk about that interdependence as collective responsibility in schools. So we have a theory of action, which is just a fancy way of saying a set of beliefs, you know, using research as well about what makes for good schools. And one piece of that is what we call collective responsibility, which is every adult in the building working together. And you're absolutely right about it. Doesn't mean every adult's doing the same thing. They're bringing their piece of the puzzle to bear on behalf of supporting student success. It's interesting. Just last week, I had a webinar luncheon for people who were raising neurodiverse change makers. And we were talking about the steps to take if your child is struggling in school. And one of those steps after bringing in resources to help support them was having everybody who's involved be on the team, not siloed. If they have a counselor, if they have a teacher, they have a special education. That's right. If they have a executive functioning coach, whatever they have, start a Google document and everybody chimes in what they're working on with that one student and strategies and the language they're using for those strategies so that everybody who's interacting with that child can help generalize that strategy with the same language. Exactly. And then say whether it's working or not, it's great to try a strategy. How is it playing out in their regular life? Are they able to apply it? Do they really understand it? Is it helpful? 
or does it need to be tweaked? Right. And then it's so much easier for the child to see this is a generalizable approach or a strategy, not just I use this with Mrs. So-and-so. And most of our neurodiverse students, that is one of the difficulties that they have is being able to say, oh, this same technique generalizes into this. It's just so important to enable that team because it will then just magnify the results of the support, which ultimately means that it would be a shorter time span where they actually need the support. It's so much easier to share and also to talk together over Zoom. You don't have to all physically go to the same location. Yeah. And I think that's where we've missed an opportunity and evolution. How can we use the technology to build a more cohesive support system? And also everybody has the parent's permission and the parent themselves are on that Google Doc. Then you can share legally and really work for the benefit of the individual, including talking to the individual each week. And I really think that's the role of the parent or the person that they feel is their strongest advisor or mentor. And like it or not, oftentimes as a parent, we're not the person to be doing that. Whether we have the expertise or not, it feels like a judgment to our children when we chime in versus somebody from the outside. I love it when you can take the individual experience and then put it into the community experience. Uh I agree. I know that you spend a ton of time thinking about this and you're an amazing strategic thinker. Are there any other things that maybe you could share with parents or teachers that are listening to this? How can an individual like support change in their community? I think one, people shouldn't, shouldn't be silent. And two, I think it's really helpful to the extent people can share their views, but also try and ask questions to hear the other perspective. Because then I think it's much more likely that there is some cohesion. Then people are like, oh, we're really not on opposite sides. We do have different parts of the elephant, and now we can identify ways to work together. There are times when parents or other advocates, they have every right to be angry. I don't want to dismiss that there are kids who are not well served. And when whoever it is approaches from a point of anger, I call that, that the mama bear syndrome. Yes. Personally, I have been the mama bear in times, but then you don't have your listening ears on. If you can ask questions about, so I see that this is happening. From your perspective, why is that? I think the more you can create a dialogue as opposed to people feeling attacked, it still may be that you ask all the questions you understand and it's still totally unacceptable. I'm not saying you don't say that, that same luncheon, it was step five. After you deal with yourself and talk with your student, then go listen to the teachers because they see that child several hours a day in that environment and have insights. Some of our neurodiverse students have ineffective coping mechanisms that can be confrontational or deceitful. And it's just the way they have been able to cope with not having their needs met 
those behaviors can leave what I call residue mm-hmm. on the educators who are trying to help them. Right. If they're constantly defiant, mm-hmm. it's really hard to feel, I love working with this kid. <laughs> but to increase the understanding of why that behavior is happening and what is the root of that behavior, then allows everybody to get on board and understand and to know that they have support and not just expectations. The other thing that dialogue can do is sometimes there's multiple ways to meet a need. So, So a classic example in special education is I want my child to have a one on one aid. If you come in with just, I want this. And there's no listening and no kind of unpacking of the Mm -hmm. why in all directions. Then it's just you're at loggerheads because the system is saying your child doesn't need a one-on-one. The parent or family member is saying, I want a one-on-one aid. It's interesting. The way I approach it with my students when I'm working with them is what do you think would help this situation? They might say what I would call a noun, an aid or time. I say, when you're saying the one-on-one aid, describe, use adjectives as to what you think that will feel like. Because I think when we get to the adjectives and what they're trying to create in the feeling of having that one noun, then you can start opening up the ways of how to manifest that feeling or that need that they have in a much more realistic way. And I think that's true when you're trying to manifest anything in your life. For some parents, they want to make sure their child's safe. Saying a one-on-one aid, because that to them is somebody's paying attention every minute to what's happening for my child. Again, going back to your point, it's more unpacking. You're really trying to get it. And I think the opposite can be true. It was interesting. We had an administrator on that luncheon and she was saying, well, if we see that a child needs support and we're trying to get the ball rolling for that, and then we run into resistance from their caretakers, how do we affect the change that we need to do to meet the needs of that child? And And I think that it's the same thing meet with them. What stories are the caretakers telling themselves about the process of being identified? And a lot of us carry PTSD. Let's face it, we have evolved a little bit. If you were identified or labeled, you were tracked and you were a social pariah. So there's a lot of those fears that parents are still carrying without realizing that starting that process and understanding how that child learns, it does have to come with a label to get the legal support, but it is not a death sentence anymore. You know, it's not like you're just pushed out of the system and there's no expectations for learning. I think it goes both ways. Any other words of wisdom? Thanks. I think we've covered a lot of ground. Well, and I do want to take this moment to say that Sue is my oldest sister. But I didn't want to undercut it right from the start. In our family, we were brought up to value education. Our mom spent most of her volunteer time on education, whether it was on school boards or special ed programs 
interestingly enough, three out of the four daughters are in education. And I would just like to say, Sue, that I've always admired your ability to analyze and take on the big problems. You never shy away from an enormous challenge. I'll never forget when you called me and said, I got a new job. It's the superintendent of Providence, Rhode Island. After the mayor had just fired the entire school system, I was like, yeah, I heard about that on the news. Did anybody else apply? I know. I do remember you asking me that. Well, thanks, Gail. And I want to say I'm so excited about unsuitable advice. This work and this framing of the work is really sorely needed. It's been really interesting for me as I go along my process. We came at it sort of from opposite ends. Right? Yeah, exactly. You came at it from the like 50,000 feet. Right. The and, system side. Yeah. Part, and I'm yeah. like the underground. You but need then both. In the end, our experiences came to the same understanding of what was needed. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. That's all for today. If you would like to hear more podcasts on supporting neurodiverse students, please follow our Unsuitable Advice podcast. If you want more information on the art of raising a changemaker, sign up for our weekly group. Head over to our website, unsuitableadvice.com, and sign up for our newsletter. And don't forget, it's better to be outside of the box.